We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. It's raining codes. Old codes, new codes, E-codes, E&M codes. Today, we welcome the legendary Rose Dunn, former CEO, president, and board member of the American Health Information Management Association. She will file her popular Dunn Report. We'll get the latest CDI news from Cheryl Erickson. Dr. John Zellum adds another entry in his journaling John M.D., and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who says he's going to see Taylor Swift in hopes of getting a custom-made suit really fast, Chuck Buck. <laughs> hey, thanks, Clark. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the 534th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. Well, good morning, good. Chuck. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Hey, uh, as you know so well, Talk 10 Tuesday, of course, is about ICD-10 coding, and we have been reporting on ICD-10 codes for 11 years now, including, of course, the E&M code updates with your good friend Colleen Deegan. But, you know, last Tuesday, I was really impressed when Karen Barton from Cameron Memorial Hospital talked about Z-codes. Yes, that was a great segment, and I always love talking about social determinants of health. Yes, and of course, and speaking of codes, of course, uh, we've got ICD-11 uh, looming on the horizon as well, and they're almost like like 74,000 ICD-10 codes. No wonder it seems like it's raining codes, <laughs> rain and thunder. And speaking of which, uh, what's your segment all about today? I'm going to be talking about telehealth and the concept of a national license. Wow, look forward to your talk back as well. Hey, folks, it's Election Day in some parts of the country. It's Tuesday, December the 6th, and you're listening to the 534th Live Edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. Stand by. Do you have questions? We have answers. If you're searching for hard-to-find answers about coding cardiology, laboratory, radiology, and respiratory, search no more. The subject matter experts at MedLearn Media provide answers to these tough questions each week, answers that will help safeguard accurate coding and save reimbursement. Get answers to these and other questions weekly when you subscribe to the Compliance Question of the Week. That's right. The Compliance Question of the Week from MedLearn Media provides answers to help you overcome compliance challenges, reduce operational waste, and optimize healthcare. Subscribe now to the Compliance Question of the Week and find answers to coding questions on cardiology, radiology, laboratory, and respiratory. From MedLearn Media, it's the questions you need answered, delivered each week to your email box. Here now with the Talk to Tuesday CDI report is Cheryl Erickson, and good morning, Cheryl. Good morning. Today I'd like to talk about uncertain diagnoses. Some diagnoses can be validated with diagnostic evidence, x-ray, CT scans, ultrasounds, other types of, of tests like that, while other diagnoses are based on a provider's experience and patient presentation. Many CDI and coding professionals rely upon official coding guidelines for uncertain diagnoses 
that states if a diagnosis documented at the time of discharge is qualified as probable, suspected, likely, questionable, possible, or still to be ruled out, compatible with, consistent with, or similar terms, as if they haven't listed enough terms already, indicating uncertainty, code the condition as if it existed or was established. But did you know there's also an uncertain diagnosis for the outpatient setting, and it states do not code diagnoses that are clarified as uncertain or other similar terms, and they use things like working diagnosis, questionable, ruled out, compatible with, consistent with, probable and suspected. And it says in the outpatient setting, you code to the conditions with the highest degree of certainty for that encounter or visit, such as symptoms, signs, abnormal test results, or other reasons for visits, which is often why we see physicians documenting in symptoms instead of diagnoses. Now, because these guidelines both include the phrase other similar terms, Coding Clinic has been asked about different qualifiers and if their use results in an uncertain diagnosis or not. Consequently, Coding Clinic has determined the phrase concern for and the phrase appears to be makes a diagnosis uncertain. But did you know that Coding Clinic also stated when the provider documents evidence of a particular condition, it is not considered an uncertain diagnosis and should be coded and reported appropriately in the outpatient setting. Now, some may think this advice only applies to the outpatient setting, but if we look back at those guidelines, we realize that the outpatient setting has a more restrictive coding guideline. Therefore, if evidence of is not a qualifier that allows a diagnosis to be reported in the outpatient setting, the same would be true for the inpatient setting. If a provider documents evidence of gram-negative pneumonia or some other clinical diagnosis in the progress note, and the diagnosis is supported with clinical evidence and meets the definition of a reportable diagnosis or principal diagnosis, then the diagnosis can be reported, and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the time of discharge where it's documented. It can be documented in any progress note along the way. There are several instances when providers may rely upon clinical findings to either make a diagnosis or provide more specificity about a diagnosis, like specifying the type of pneumonia when they can't find a culture to isolate the organism, ischemic stroke, metabolic encephalopathy, and the use of evidence of may be appropriate due to the lack of diagnostic evidence to show beyond a shadow of a doubt this is the right condition. Providers aren't required to prove a diagnosis beyond the shadow of a doubt for it to be reportable, but many are still hesitant to document a diagnosis until they reach a degree of certainty due to the potential for liability. So each provider will have their own threshold for how much clinical evidence they need to make a definitive diagnosis, but remember, that's allowable under Coding Guideline 19. When educating providers about the use of evidence of, I also educate them to document if the condition is later ruled out. I find this to be a more successful approach than hoping a provider will document a diagnosis is uncertain at the time of discharge because many times the person completing the discharge summary hasn't seen the patient throughout the duration of the stay. I'm not sure why more CDI encoding professionals prefer to rely on the inpatient uncertain diagnosis guideline rather than educating providers to use evidence of, but I hope this segment and or reading the article will help you encourage more of you to use this approach. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Cheryl. And I'll add my two cents. My recommendation is always to marry signs and symptoms with your uncertain diagnosis because it conveys both some clinical information to uh, the next caregiver and it also gives signs and symptoms for your professional fee to the highest degree of certainty. 
But on the technical side, inpatient, if it hasn't been ruled out by time of discharge or demise, it can be picked up and coded. So I say marry the two and use them both. Thank you. That was Cheryl Erickson. Cheryl is Director of CDI and Utilization Management for the Brundage Group. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Erica, thanks very much for your comment on her report. And again, Cheryl Erickson, thank you again. Be sure to read her article on this very important subject. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. We continue now with our series here on Talk Ten Tuesday. It's called Journaling John MD, and here now is the Journaling John MD, Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. What's going on? Good morning, sir, and good morning to everybody else. The word that I'm going to talk about today is something that we normally associate with infectious diseases, and that's the word culture. But I'm going to talk about it in a little bit more different uh, definition. Culture is something that we are exposed to every day, no matter what age we are, the field we work in, and life in general. It has been defined as all the ways of life, including the arts, the beliefs and institutions of a population that has been passed down from those prior to us. It includes language, customs, and beliefs about roles and relationships. We want to fit into society, our jobs and our professions, and every place that we go. That can be challenging as we are subject to the various different cultures as they exist where we are going. Culture is learned. It is not taught. When we leave one culture and move to another, it may may take up to six months to learn that new culture. There is one very important aspect that needs to be considered with learning a new culture, and that is one's attitude towards that change. Many of us, if not all of us, have experienced a job or profession change. The job part itself was easy, as there is usually a description that one can view to see if it is a fit. The next part, the interview, is the next challenge. Are you a fit for the organization, and is the organization a fit for you? The final step in that process is acceptance or rejection from you or the organization. What may even add to the complexity is if you were hired to change the culture, which many times is not easy. And here is where the rubber meets the road. Much of this has helped me initially and every day as I work at two culturally different hospitals, and I need to make mental paradigm shifts frequently. Neither culture is wrong, and I must remember that there may be parts of that culture that one may dislike or disapprove of, but these are part of a broader social system and therefore make more sense inside that system. That doesn't mean that process changes cannot be made or improved, but it must be done in a manner that respects the organizational culture, which may also need change in the long run. Chances are that you have been in similar situations within your organization or new organizations, depending upon your position and your role. Here is one important principle to keep forefront in your mind. Maintain a mindset of open-mindedness and curiosity to learn. Adjusting to a new culture doesn't mean that you must change your own values, but to my previous point, it must be done with respect. Maintain an attitude of positivity and not one of, this is how I've always done it, with no intention to change. In summary, remember, culture is not taught. It's learned. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, John. That was Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting 
and he's the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital and Adams Memorial Hospital, both in Indiana. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and uh, thank you, Dr. John Zellum. Be sure to read Dr. John Zellum's excellent article. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. And a program reminder, you're listening to the 534th live edition of Talking Tuesday. Stand by, please. Coding for E&M, Evaluation and Management Services, is a challenge. And the 2023 E&M updates to codes and guidelines are complex. You need to master them now because they will impact revenue and compliance. Good news. In an upcoming webcast, Becky Rodrigan Jacobson will walk you through the 2023 E&M chapter and category guidelines specific to emergency department and hospital visit professional services. She will provide details that support each category and demonstrate how to compliantly document each element of the E&M and ultimately to select the correct level of service to help ensure a compliant reimbursement. Learn from Becky Rodrigan Jacobson. Register now for 2023 E&M Workshop, Master the New Guidelines for ED and Hospital Visit Professional Services. Now on sale at the ICD University Bookstore. The legendary Rose Dunn is with us this morning, and she has her Dunn Report. And good morning, Rose. Thanks for being with us. Well, good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. And, you know, first, I want to just wish everyone on the broadcast a happy and safe holiday season. It's been kind of crazy out there this month already, but I'm hoping everyone has a healthy season and a happy new year. You know, every CFO um, wants to be happy as well this time of the year, and he expects us to make a dent in the DNFC by year end. So today, I'll be discussing two common hospital coding approaches to managing the discharged, not final coded Q, which we call the DNFC. One is coding the highest to lowest dollar accounts. The other is coding the oldest to newest accounts, and both have their pros and cons. If we only use the highest to lowest dollar approach, there will be low dollar accounts that will sit out there for a long time before they are coded because those high dollar accounts keep flowing in. Often, these may be ancillary tests and simple outpatient procedures done in a procedure room. But if they sit on the DNFC list too long, when they are eventually coded, it might be too late to submit them for billing because the date of service may trigger a denial for untimely billing for some payer contracts. So we need to be cognizant of the payer contract restrictions when we use the highest to lowest dollar approach. However, when we apply the high to low dollar approach, the DNFC is kept to a lower level, which makes the CFO happy because all the high dollar accounts have been coded. That is, assuming we have the documentation that we need for coding. If we alternatively apply the oldest to newest account approach, we ensure that the old accounts are addressed and we can avoid those untimely billing denials that we just discussed. However, those uncoded high-dollar accounts could continue to inflate the DNFC at a higher level. So what's best? Well, 
I'm not a fan of routinely using one or the other. I prefer a hybrid. If we have a team of coders and more than one coder for record types, then I'd suggest one code high to low dollar accounts while the other codes oldest to newest accounts. Another option, which is pretty popular, especially with your PFS uh, department, your patient financial services department, is to code high to low dollar accounts for the first 15 days of the month, especially the Medicare accounts. Medicare typically pays electronic claims within 13 to 14 days, but this 13 to 14 days only applies to organizations that use electronic claims processing. So what this approach does by coding the high to low accounts at the beginning of the month, it enhances your cash flow by month end. After day 15, you flip back to the oldest to newest approach to clean up the cases that are sitting out there on the tail of the DNFC list. Of course, it goes without saying that those individuals working in deficiency analysis and suspension need to assertively nudge your providers to secure the documentation that the coders rely upon, such as the discharge summary operative report and PATH report. And then other than missing documents, there are other factors that impact timely coding. One is timely query responses. We need to ensure our CDI specialists routinely follow up on these with the providers. However, the coding manager may need to evaluate those outstanding queries to see if the query will truly impact the reimbursement or the integrity of the coding. If not, the case could be coded and the claim can be dropped. Then, if and when the query isn't answered, coding corrections or additions can be made. Some organizations have also set a time frame to code a case after a certain number of days of it being unanswered. Another of many factors that impact timely coding are pended accounts. Often we will pend accounts for such things as a missing document, the need to review for a CC or MCC, or evaluate a hack code. Monitoring the status of these queries is crucial for coding managers because, again, if the account sits in the pended state too long, we may be faced with untimely billing claim denials. Bottom line, coding is critical to an organization's cash flow and will always be on the CFO's radar. Back to you, Erica. Rose, that was a great segment. I used to remember when I was a physician advisor, uh, at the end of the month and at the end of the year, I would actually go onto the query, the you know, the working query list, and see if I could help close things out um, to help facilitate as well. That was a great segment. Thank you, Rose Dunn. She is the past president of AHIMA and chief operating officer of First Class Solutions. Chuck. Thank you very much, Erica, for your comment and context for that report. And uh, Rose Dunn, thank you again. Here is Dr. Erica Reamer with her very popular segment here at Talk to Enthusi. It's called Talk Back, Dr. Reamer. It's all yours. Thank you, Chuck. On a recent vacation, my brother-in-law was sharing that he was unable to get his sleep apnea test results that were done the week before. He couldn't access the results on his uh, provider, you know, patient portal, because the doctor wanted to discuss them in a virtual visit. Don explained that the New Hampshire law mandates that virtual visits be done within the confines of the state. 
I was skeptical because the public health emergency is still in place. Don, a pediatrician, said that when he does a virtual visit, he too must confirm that the patient is located in New Hampshire. At the beginning of the pandemic, CMS and states waived the requirement that providers be licensed in the state where the patient was located and that telehealth was being provided. Telemedicine use was widely expanded to protect patients from being exposed to COVID-19, but it was found to be very convenient. The national PHE is still in effect, but many of the state's public health emergency declarations have expired, and the requirement for in-state telemedicine has been reinstated in many locations. In September of 2021, I had some toe surgery. My provider decided to leave the stitches in for an additional week. Several days before I was due in for suture removal, my father contracted COVID-19, and I had to answer that pre-screening question about exposure, yes. As a result, my provider's office rendered my follow-up, virtual, my follow-up visit virtual. I was perplexed as to how she planned on removing my stitches virtually. I got a hold of a kit and dug the embedded stitches out myself, but I wondered how a normal, non-emergency physician patient would have managed. Suture removal is not appropriate for telemedicine. There are some types of visits which lend themselves to telemedicine. How about medical care that does not require a hands-on physical examination? For instance, a check-in to see if the antibiotics are having their desired effect or if the new medication has caused any side effects. A visual diagnosis like, is this poison ivy, could be fitting for telemedicine. My opinion is that psychiatric and psychological visits might be appropriate, but there certainly are folks who prefer to be seen in person for mental health care. Virtual visits may culminate in the provider determining that an in-person visit is necessary. The provider may decide a physical examination or a test or a study is needed. The patient always has a right to decline a virtual visit and opt for an in-person one. I prefer to schlep, schlep my father back and forth to see his physician in person because I think a physical examination is valuable. If the patient seems sick enough, the provider can always recommend presenting in person or that they should go to an emergency department or urgent care. There are scenarios where in-state visits are not convenient or potentially feasible. People who live near borders, like my brother moved from um, Missouri to Kansas, may want to stay with a practitioner who practices in the next next state over. Out-of-state college-aged kids may need their attention deficit medications renewed. Snowbirds and vacationers with with complex medical histories may benefit from the expertise of the the provider who knows them well. I have been licensed in Illinois, Michigan, and Ohio. My husband held multiple licenses because the Cleveland Clinic offered remote radiology services. I don't recall any substantive differences in the licensure. It was more a matter of filling out reams of paperwork and paying a fee. I suppose the money is the barrier. It really isn't about the medicine. Barring minor geographical differences in potential organisms, diagnosing a pneumonia is pretty much the same anywhere you are. With the widespread provider shortage issue, it may be time to think out of the box and create a national licensure. It would allow for telemedicine across state lines 
and would allow providers to pick up stakes and move to another community expeditiously. Locum's providers could ship in when needed. Maybe state medical boards could collect a fee for monitoring quality. I don't think this is a financial issue. It is an access and continuity of care issue. Don't we all want the same thing? Patients should be able to get competent medical care wherever and whenever they need it and from their health care provider. Chuck, back to you. Wow. Thanks, Erica. Very much. Excellent segment. Now's the time for our town hall, so let's see what folks are saying. Erica? Yeah, Cheryl, it looks like we have a couple of questions for you. Um, the first question says, when you were talking about inpatient and outpatient setting and not using probable diagnoses or using them, are you talking about facility fee coding or professional fee coding, or do the rules apply to both? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's important to note that coding guidelines and coding clinic doesn't differentiate between professional and hospital outpatient setting. They refer to them both generically as the outpatient setting. So the guideline is going to apply to both the professional setting as well as the hospital outpatient setting. And actually, even the profi that's in the inpatient setting um, needs to follow the outpatient rules. So basically, the uncertain... Um, diagnosis rule is really only for facility um, charges inpatient. Okay, the next question is regarding the uncertain diagnosis again. How should the CDI or coder handle diagnosis listed as, quote, suspicious, close quote? Is it the same as evidence of? That's a great question. I don't know if coding clinic has specifically been posed um, suspicious, but my guess is that's going to be interpreted more as an uncertain because that seems to already include a degree of uncertainty in what they're saying that they're suspicious. They're not saying that it's um, you know, definitely there. What I like to educate providers, especially when it comes to those things like the pneumonias is the best example I can think of because oftentimes the physician doesn't know the causative organism, but you can diagnose a complex pneumonia from the patient's presentation if they've been in the healthcare setting, if they respond to antibiotics, and there's other clues that they can use along the way to differentiate between perhaps a community-acquired pneumonia and a more virulent type of pneumonia causing the uh, causative organism. And so what you want to make sure that you're doing is having the physician either document evidence of the gram negative or whatever is the prevalent pathogen in your area, or they can say treating. Um, they don't want to ever say prophylactically treating because that'll make it seem like they're preventing something. Um, and a lot of times physicians will say prophylactically treating a UTI, but we want to make sure that they either say that they're treating or that there's evidence of because those are the language that we have, because sometimes the physician doesn't want to say gram-negative pneumonia outright because they don't have any diagnostics to prove it. I'm sure you've got some um, feedback that you can add to that as well, Dr. Raymer. Yeah, indeed I do. Um, as a clinician, you know, one of the things I tell them is to not use wild speculation. So uncertain diagnoses should really be if you have a pretty good suspicion. And I can tell you that providers have sort of a range of words. So to me, you know, me saying likely or probably is different than saying possible or, you know, consider. So you just sort of have to look at how your, your provider is documenting it. And it may be that you need to do a clinical validation um, if, they're, if they're really so iffy 
that you can't determine whether they really think it's going on or not and whether you think it really is appropriate to be coded or not. Um, but I think uncertain diagnoses are a way of the provider giving you information that they think something's going on. Um, Chuck, I think we have one more question. I think Rose has a question. Hey, Erica, thanks so much for your comments earlier on your talkback piece. I have a question about the suture removal on your foot. I guess it was <laughs> your foot, right? Yeah. Did you bill for that suture removal? Did you allow your provider to bill for it? It's a good question. You know, I, I was like, I was wondering, I actually was going to take a look and see if she had billed for it because that would sort of irritate me. Um, but that's, that's a, a, a good, that was a very good point. Thank you, Rose. All right, Chuck, back to you. Yeah, thanks, everybody. <laughs> Great question, Rose, and good response, Erica. And uh, that is going to be a wrap for this. this is our uh, 534th Live Edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, the legendary Rose and Cheryl Erickson. Dr. John Zellman, a very special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk Ten Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.